0: Well, I am so encouraged by our church, and I could say that probably for a variety of reasons each week, but uh, in particular, I, I'm encouraged by the response that all of you showed uh, last week. Uh, if you weren't with us, uh, last Sunday was part of our 6-8 our weekend where we focus uh, on this one Sunday on what we're called to focus on on every day of our life, to live as God calls us to live, shaped by humility, And justice and mercy coming out of Micah chapter six, verse eight. And this was the focus of our teaching, but we also uh, provided a few opportunities where you might be part of, of extending this mercy to our community. And, and we saw many of you sign up for our GAP team that we're trying to get started. Uh, there was quite a few assembling blessing bags out there and then taking them to distribute to our homeless neighbors. People were signing up to volunteer at Woodglen. I uh, wasn't gonna bring this up, but I, I've just been so shaped by it. Brody and I got to go to, Wood Glen elementary it's just right down the road from us and we went this past wednesday and we dropped off uh, dessert and food and all kinds of stuff like that uh, we're a little early on the slide uh we we dropped off uh this food at Wood Glen, and um I, as we were walking out the office manager came up to us and said in all my years of teaching i've never seen a church support their local school like we've seen you do that and that's you guys. We're, we're able to do this because of your generosity. It's, in, it's incredible. But in particular, I, I'm encouraged by the, the support that you showed as part of our food drive uh, to support Food for Hope. When they came, uh, they, they brought these seven bins for, for us to, to put the food in. And, and I, I liked the challenge of it. Uh, that's going to take a lot of food to, to fill all of that. Uh, it's, it's more, I think, than we did last year. But, but we'll, we'll see how our people show up. And as you can see in this picture, that not only did we fill up all seven bins, we actually needed more. There, there's still food piled up on the side next to that. So it was incredible seeing that. Uh, in, in addition, we had the opportunities to, to bring uh, these, these birthday kits, everything needed to, to, to bake a cake for kids in our area that don't have something to celebrate their birthday with. And, and this is a small mercy, but how incredible is it that 40 kids this year, 40 kids will have something to celebrate their birthday with? It's, it's so encouraging to see your generosity extended to our community. I, I bring all this up right now uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I, I, I'm not the best at having these times to pause. Uh, so often when we have these events, I, I, I hit them hard as be a part of six, eight weekend, and then I move on to the next part of the calendar. So 4th of July is coming up, you guys excited about that? And it's, it's such a miss to ask all of us to be part of something and then to not include us in the wonderful results of that. So hold me accountable to those moments. And, and please do so for when I'm missing on celebrating with all of you what all of you have done. So I bring it up for that. I bring it up for another reason. Uh, I, I can't help it. I'm so encouraged by you all this week that I, 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 I want to keep talking about how great 6-8 uh, weekend was. Uh, but The third reason why I bring it up is that there is a, a, a little bit of a, a connection from what we focused on last week on the humility, the justice and mercy God calls us to, to do, and our passage out of Daniel 4 this week. We had a big uh, section of it read. There, there's, there's a lot of narrative in the story. So let me, let me set the stage and kind of summarize what we're seeing uh, in Daniel chapter 4. So the, the king of, of Babylon at the time is a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and, uh, the king of Babylon at the time is a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And, and he is the one who has conquered God's people. He has brought them into exile. He's he's created this whole indoctrination program to get them to abandon their culture, their beliefs, their faith in God, and instead be more Babylonian in culture, in beliefs, to let go of all that you've held before and instead do this instead. Nebuchadnezzar is the one leading that. He's also the most powerful man on the planet at the time, most likely, as he's the most powerful ruler of the most powerful nation. That man had a bad dream. And in this bad dream, we're told of this, this incredible tree that he's dreaming of. It's, it's beautiful. It's massive. It says it reaches to heaven. And, and it's going into great detail about how wonderful its leaves are how incredible the fruit of the tree is, how it's providing homes and shelters for birds and animals of all kinds. It's going on and on about how incredible this tree is. And then it's cut down. And then we're told that this tree that was so incredible, that's cut down, will actually represents a man, a person. And this person is going to have the mind of a beast, of an animal, and go live with the animals for seven periods of time. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he doesn't know what it means, but he can get the worrying aspect of this. And so he brings in all of his wise men to, to tell them what it means, and they can't do it. So he brings in Daniel, who's interpreted dreams before, to, to tell him what this one means. And we have this incredible turn in verse 22. This, this tree that's, that's so glorious, well, it is you, O king, that you are that one who will be cut down. You are that one who will be given the mind of a beast and go live with the animals for seven periods of time. But it doesn't have to be that way. There is something that you could do. And this is Daniel chapter four, verse 27. It says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. This is the result that's gonna happen to you. You will be this tree that's cut down. You will be given a mind of a beast, but it doesn't have to be like that. Break off your sins, practice righteousness, show mercy to the oppressed. And, And all this flows out of what was, we're told in verse 25, I I think this is the heart of the chapter. Why is he called to do this? Well, it's because there is someone even greater than him. He's a king who has, has so many reasons to be uh, proud in this moment. And yet there's one even greater than him, the most high God who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Because there is a God like that, a God who's in control of all things, not aloof, but one who's working in the lives of people, working on this earth, because there is a God like that, Nebuchadnezzar, turn away from your sins. Show mercy to the oppressed. Live in the righteous way he calls us to live. But then, as we're told this way, what is it gonna be? Is he gonna follow this most high God or give in to his pride? We get verse 28. It says, And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, so 12 months after he's given this warning, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell upon him a voice from heaven, O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. I'll cut it off right there, but it will keep going on and tell him that what was, what was brought about in that dream will come true. He will be given this mind like a beast. He'll go and live with them. He'll, he'll, uh, for seven periods of time, he will act the part of an animal. And we have this incredible uh, part of the story where, where uh, the king refuses to humble himself. He refuses to acknowledge the most high God and those dreams do come true. And he, because he was unwilling to humble himself, he instead is humbled and he loses all that he had before, his, his kingdom, his, his authority, his power. He loses his fancy food as now he's gonna go eat grass. But that's not the end. And this is verse 34. It said, and at the end of the days, at the end of this period of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Why was his reason returned to him? He lifted his eyes to heaven. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This God will rule forever, rule in the lives of people on earth. No one can tell him what he's doing his perfect and kingdom endures. Verse 36. "At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for my glory and, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and, and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. He's returned all that he had and more." Now he responds to that. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We have this incredible transformation in this king who was was so proud earlier. Now we have him responding in this way to God, extolling him with praise, And and what it is that that releases him from this humbling time is that lifting his eyes to heaven, is that acknowledgement of verse 25 that he and he alone is the most high God who he and he alone rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. As he humbles himself in this way, as he acknowledges that God is the God, he follows him, honors him as the true king, higher even than him who's able to humble those who walk in pride. I want to spend a little bit of our time on, the, on that idea of pride. What, what, what does this passage tell us about pride? And, and I want to do so because it's something that shows up quite a bit in the Bible. That, the word pride is, is in a few places, but it's also something that might be a little bit hard for us to grasp. It's that fine line of when is it unhealthy to be proud in this way and and when is it appropriate to be uh, delighted in things that we produced or or glad that we've overcome some challenge or or that we worked on something really difficult and and that makes us feel proud. So what's that that balance between when it goes from uh, a healthy delight in things that we've done to sinful pride? Because it, it, it might otherwise be hard to do that. Am I allowed to take credit for some things? Am I allowed to, to be glad that I've done something? Or do I just go around saying that nothing I've ever done is worthwhile or good or that I'm not worthwhile or good? That, that doesn't seem to be the right one as well. So what can we learn from this passage about pride? And specifically, what was it about Nebuchadnezzar's pride that was called sinful, that he was supposed to cut off? And instead, follow this God. Well, the first thing that we learn about pride from this chapter is that pride rejects righteousness. Pride rejects righteousness. It refuses to acknowledge God and refuses to live in the way God calls us to live. And this comes from Daniel's correction in verse 27, where it says, to break off your sins and, and, live in this, and practice righteousness. That's the counsel that that Daniel gives to the king. Now, here's the thing. You don't often need counsel to do something if you're already doing it. And so what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar is not living in the way that God calls him to live. And this comes as no surprise to us because he's not acknowledging who this king is. You see that in verse 30, as he's looking out in, uh, over the city of Babylon, over all, all of his, his uh, empire that he has and, and thinking about it, he goes, uh, uh, he doesn't acknowledge the source of these things. He doesn't acknowledge that it is the most high God who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. He doesn't acknowledge the rightful source of, of uh, all that he has, which gets us to a second part of pride, which is kind of the opposite side of the same coin where uh, pride rejects righteousness, but pride also maintains my majesty. Uh, Those words, my majesty, those are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. As he's looking out in in verse 30 at at this city, uh, he is, is saying, this is coming from my majesty, my power, my glory built this incredible empire. But in in the same way that he's not acknowledging that God is the one who rules over all of it, God has given him this empire, God has given him everything that he has, he's now going a little bit further and he's taking credit for what God has done. That's where he's running into a a big issue. I, I like the way that Tim Keller describes it. He calls this cosmic plagiarism. When we are claiming credit for something that only God has done when we are being proud of the work of our hands, when it was God's work that produced this. Now, now, we do have to acknowledge that if anyone had reason to be proud, at least by these sorts of standards, man, you would think it'd be Nebuchadnezzar. This is a man who, who, is, who has helped form Babylon to be the, the, the preeminent empire at the time, He's conquered nations, he's won so many wars, he's gotten to such a a point of peace and prosperity that he starts to have margin. And where my margin in life tends to be like, oh, we can go out to dinner or something like that. This guy turns Babylon into one of the preeminent cities in the world and he starts going on building project after building project to make this place an envy or delight to other people. It talks about how uh, he's looking over the city from the roof of the royal palace, which might mean uh, there that he is saying all of this surrounded by the hanging gardens of Babylon, which was on the roof of one of the royal palaces. It was considered at the time to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and he had commissioned for this to be built. As you're in one of the seven wonders of the world surrounded by that, doesn't that start to work some of that pride up in you? Look at what I've done. I say he's probably on, on that rooftop. It's, it's hard to say uh, because not only did he have that palace with the, the hanging gardens there, he had two other palaces in the city of Babylon. Talk about uh, having margin where not only can you create this place that is a wonder to the world, you have like two other backup palaces just in case. Or he could have been looking at any of the other parts that made Babylon so marvelous. Maybe he's looking out and he says Etemenanki, which is this temple that was there at the time, which outside of the, the great pyramids of Egypt, it was the tallest structure in the world. He, he can look anywhere he wants in the city and he's going to see how incredible it is. And there's no denying that. In fact, I think our passage affirms that piece. You remember how I talked about in this dream, it's going on and on about how wonderful this tree is. Its leaves are amazing. Its fruit is amazing. It's it's offering so much to the beasts and the birds and the animals around it. It sure seems like the dream's acknowledging, yeah, what you have is incredible. Is not Babylon great? But where he runs into issues is not in saying this is an incredible place. This is a beautiful place. He runs into issues when he starts to say, this is from my hand. This is from my mighty power. This is for my glory. This is from my majesty. See, where he runs into issue, where, where his, his delight in what he's been able to do turns into pride, when he starts to think that he is solely responsible for it, as if he, it's not done with the product of breath that comes from God, life that comes from God, the unique situation that he's in that comes from God, the work of his hands. Oh, those hands, those came from God too. That every part of it is because of God's working within him and he is instead claiming, no, I did this, this is mine. That's where this turned from a healthy appreciation of something wonderful to taking credit for something that he never should have. Pride also expects endurance. Pride teaches or tricks us into thinking that the way things are now will be the way things always will be. And it makes sense that we'd get to that point, right? Like if I'm the one who, who did this, if, if this is from the work of my hand, then this is going to stay the, the case as long as I have breath in my lungs. As long as I can keep this up, it will stay up. But this is contrary to the proverb that we have, isn't it? That pride comes before the fall. It's never pride comes before just continuing to have more and more pride. It's pride comes before the fall. But if anyone could trick themselves into thinking that, yeah, this is going to last forever, again, I think it's Nebuchadnezzar. That he is a man who's conquered so many places. He's built this empire to be so large that it's easy to think in that moment, like, who could oppose me? And even if, they, even if they did, like, you look at the fortifications that he did to the city of Babylon. He built this wall all the way around the city. And then inside of that wall, he had walled off sections as well. And at one place, uh, we're, we're told at, at one point, the wall is so thick that two chariots could pass by each other on top of the wall. That's how wide it is. That's how thick of a wall this is. This is a man who feels safe and secure who feels that nothing could oppose him or take this place that he has built away. But we know that's not the case. We know that this is a trick that pride plays on us to think that it will endure forever. Because you see it even in the course of history, that those incredible walls that he built, well, they don't exist anymore. The hanging gardens, those, that's not around Edam and is is just a crumbled foundation. That even as you look in the book of Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar himself, he he won't make it to chapter five. The Babylonian empire won't make it to chapter six. That pride teaches us to expect endurance and that never turns out to be the case. And, And maybe we see that in our lives as well. That so often when we think of our best days, They're things that we're looking back on. They're things that we are reminded of, of how things used to be but aren't anymore. It's like as the great philosopher Bruce Springsteen says, uh, glory days well they'll pass you by. Glory days in the wink of a young girl's eyes. Glory days, glory days. And yet pride tricks us into thinking that the way things are will be the way things continue to be. And yet, uh, th- that there's no reason to reminisce; that this is just gonna keep going on. But what we see instead is that truth of verse 25, that it's the most high God who rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills, that the only reason things are maintained is the same reason things are begun, that it's God who's in control of all things. Finally, we have pride overlooks others. Pride overlooks others. And this is the second part of of Daniel's counsel that he gave to the king. He said, break off your sins and and practice uh, righteousness. And then he said, to show mercy to the oppressed. Pride doesn't often think of anyone apart from itself. It, it, It tends to have this mentality of, I'm the one who made myself like this. Why can't they do the same thing? Or, or what benefit is it to me if I help this person? Yet in doing so, we miss not only how God has called us to live, which, which is the counsel that's given to him, but we also miss how much mercy has been lavishly poured out on us by that same God. This is a chapter that's, that's so focused on the pride of this king, and, and I wanna bring all this up because this is written as a warning passage. That this man who thought he was, who was uh, so big that nothing could ever stop him, he was humbled in such a drastic way that he was acting like a beast, like an animal. And, and there's a warning in this passage for, for anyone who might have the, the, slow, the, the, the slow temptation and deceit of pride come into our lives. That it could be written, as you, O oh Zach, are that tree— and sure, maybe not as glorious and reaching to heaven and, and uh, the leaves and fruit are amazing on it as, as this king was, probably more of an unkept bonsai. But uh, the, the idea is, is still the same, that we all have this temptation in us, this deceit of pride that can sneak into our lives. And so what we see in this passage is this response. It all goes back to acknowledge God, that he alone is the most high God. And so we turn our our gaze to him, like Nebuchadnezzar did after his humbling. We acknowledge him, we repent, we show mercy to others. And Nebuchadnezzar was unwilling to live in that way. He continued to make himself out as more than any other man. And as a result of that, he was made less than a man so that he might see his right place as a man. And, and for, for all of us in here, there, there's this temptation to succumb to this, this, uh, this aspect of pride. To do one of those four things that we've talked about. To reject righteousness. To not follow as God calls us to do. Maybe th- we think that we know better. To uh, maintain my majesty. To think that we have a, a greater hand in things than we really do. To not exal- acknowledge its true source in God to expect endurance, to think that things will just continue on forever or to overlook others, that we too might fall to this sin of pride. And it's such a hard thing for us to undo because as I said, it comes in deceitfully. It's not one day we wake up and we're automatically pride, uh, proud. It's something that slowly builds up over time and we might not notice that it's there. And once we do, it's hard to get rid of to remove this pride that's in our lives. Because what often is our our response in those times? Like, ah, I've noticed I've been uh, pretty proud as of late. I've been taking credit for things that aren't mine. I'm not acknowledging who God is. You know what, I'm gonna really work on that. I'll I'll make it right. If I follow these steps that I've come up with, then, then I can get rid of the pride in my life, which of course further produces pride in me, that I'm the one who can fix my pride. But it's such a, a difficult thing to undo. What I think is the best picture of it comes from uh, the, the third book of the Chronicles of Narnia series. There's this character in that book named uh, Eustace. And over the course of the story, and I'm really not going to do it uh, as service that it deserves. It, it's a beautiful section. Read Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, but in this part, Eustace, who's this really proud character, ends up being turned into a dragon. A proud character turned into a beast? Where does C.S. Lewis admittedly get his ideas? (laughs) And so in this event, he's turned into this animal. And and after living in this way for a while, he, 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 he hates this part of him. In fact, when he turned into a dragon, he tried to claw off his new scaly flesh, and he couldn't do it. All it produced was more pain in him. And he eventually meets Aslan, this lion who's the Christ figure of the story. And Aslan says, only I can do that for you. And he starts to tear, it's very vivid, to tear the flesh off of this dragon. And we're told it from Eustace's perspective, and he's talked about the pain of it. He says, I felt like I was going to die from how excruciating it was, and yet he was turned back into a boy again. And I think that's the picture of the slow, painful work of removing pride. Because even think about how we describe things. Like, oh, my pride has been wounded. As if it's a piece of us that's so connected and ingrained to who we are. But that's not the case. When, our pr- when pride is being removed, it's not s- something of us that's being lost. It's a piece that's taken off to show us more of who we truly are. And we see that in Nebuchadnezzar, who looks from the outside like he has lost Everything. But what's really happening is it's showing him who he truly is as this man. So in this chapter that's focused on the pride of this individual, the pride of this man, we see that it's the God, the most high God, who's able to soften and guide and correct. And so our encouragement is the same. As we feel that slow trickle and deceit of pride come into our lives, that we have that most high God who softens and corrects and guides us as well. So much of this chapter is focused on pride and humility and repentance. But I do think that there is another piece that we can uh, glean from it as well. As we look at the life of Daniel in this moment. Now it's interesting, we've been so focused on Nebuchadnezzar that it could sound like Daniel's missing from this chapter like he was in chapter three. And yet he has a really incredible moment as as he's confronted with this king. And so I want to learn from him, how might we follow his example when we might be confronted with someone who's proud or someone who uh, isn't responding to the most high God or someone who is contrary to how God has called us to live? How can we learn from Daniel's example? Well, as he's brought in front of this king, the first thing that we see is that Daniel speaks with compassion. Daniel speaks with compassion to this king. This is the one who's conquered him. This is the one who's ripped him away from his home. This is the one who's trying to get him to relish, uh, relinquish belief in his God and instead follow the Babylonian way. And he's called in front of this king and he's told what the dream means. And what we don't see in that moment is celebration. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to lose your mind. You're this tree who's cut down. You're finally getting what's coming to you. We, we don't see any sort of rejoicing when he's told that this man who's an enemy to so much of what he believes will be treated in this way. Instead, this is what we read in, in verse 19. It says, then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. There's no celebration in this moment. There's no relishing in the downfall of this king who's in so opposition to him. There's just care and compassion. Maybe it was we're talking about people who are proud in this way. Uh, someone might have come to mind for us. Obviously, none of us, we're not, we're not proud in this way. That's, that's something that we, uh, we delight ourselves in. Uh, but maybe we thought of someone who's, who's proud in this way, a coworker or a friend or a family member. And when we talk about how pride comes before the fall, there could be that little bit of delight that comes into our lives. They'll get what's coming to them. But that's not the example that's given to us. It's that it's compassion. It's wanting them to avoid pain. It's more than anything else wanting this person to acknowledge the Most High God. Next, we see that Daniel speaks with candor, and this is verses 20 to 26. He, he just, because he has compassion on, the, uh, that although he has compassion on this, this king, that doesn't make him shy away from what's true and what's right. Instead, he speaks boldly to him. In fact, I would say it's because he has compassion on this king that he does speak with candor. Nothing else but the truth would be a help to him at this time. And then finally, Daniel speaks with counsel, that he gives direction to, for how this king is to live. And that's verse 27. Break off from your sins. Practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed. This man wasn't responding properly to God. And so Daniel points him back to God. Because it's only in him that he has any sort of future. It's only in him that he has anything to direct his life towards. It's only in him that this kingdom that he's in might be maintained. Turn to this God. This might sound like I'm I'm making two different points here. There's there's a passage about pride and how can we learn from Daniel's example in this culture. But but I do think it is the same point. Nebuchadnezzar's pride came from an unwillingness to acknowledge the most high God. Daniel's ability to live like this comes because he believes in the most high God that pride starts to come. We start to take credit for things when we aren't looking to him. And we're able to live in this way that sounds so difficult at times, that's so hard for us to do because we have a God who's working now, who's greater than anything else. And so that idea, how might we have compassion on other people, especially those who don't speak to us with compassion or might be so different from us? How do we have compassion on people like that? Well, we trust in the most high God? How do we speak with candor to people when we we don't know what the consequences of our words might be? When we are told that the the exclusive claims of Christianity are are bigotry, when we don't know what to say in this moment, when we don't feel the boldness to speak at this time, well, we trust in the most high God. How do we uh, speak with, with correction or counsel to other people? when I don't know that, that I know what to say to them? Or maybe I'm struggling with the same thing. How, how do I call them to, to live in a different way instead? Well, we trust in the Most High God. See, we are able to live in this way because of there is Most High God who rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And so rather than, than focusing on this primarily as, as a warning passage, don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. There's a part that we can learn from that. Or, or as, as a piece uh, to, you know, be like Daniel instead. There, there's a piece that we could take from that. Instead, I focus on the comfort of this passage. Think of how comforting a passage like this would have been to those in exile. That, that in those times where it's how do we continue to worship this God when we have been ripped from our homes? Why do we continue to follow after him when there's so much pressure to live in a different way? How do we keep uh, thinking that things will be made right when Babylon is just swelling more and more in size and power and grandeur? What's the reminder that there is a most high God who's working now, who's in control of all things? So think of what the comfort might be for us How do we live in this way God's called us to live? How do we shed pride when it's so easy to fall into that trap? What's the reminder that we can stand before people? We could even stand before kings, before trials. We could stand before hardships and know that there will come a day when all will stand before that most high God. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for these reminders in these times where we can trick ourselves into thinking that this world is all that there is. Those are the times when pride becomes easy. If all that exists is the work of our hands, then there's nothing for us to do but be proud of the work of our hands. But you remind us constantly of what you've given us, of how you provide for us, how you're constantly loving and caring and pouring out mercy on us. The reminder that while the worries and hardships of this life are, are real, it's the reminder that they will never overpower you. They will never direct us apart from where you will have us go. That you are the God who's working now, who will always be working and nothing will stand against you. Nothing can say, what have you done? Instead, we will all praise you for what you have done. So it's to you and you alone we pray.